Amy Majeski, Johnny G, Eddie Juiced, Johnny Pesky, Thornton Lee, Danny Gardella, Van Lingo Mungo, Whitey Kurowski, Max Lanier, Eddie Wakus, and Johnny Vandermeer. Bob Estalella, Van Lingo Mongo. Oh, there are a lot of baseball songs. That's still the best, though, I think, for me anyway. So, um, today on the show, we do this occasionally. We're not a sports show, obviously, but we like the sports thing. We like the running and the jumping and the diving and the kicking and the hitting. Uh, so, uh, once in a while, we do a show about it. We try to do it in our own. <laughs> Her own way. So nothing like a regular sports show, basically. Uh, we're going to talk in, in just a little while about the fastest growing sport in America, which is indisputably pickleball. It might be growing too fast for its own good, maybe losing a little bit of its early innocence. Yes, the loss of innocence in pickleball. That would be the kind of theme that would be attracted to us. We'll also, at the end of the show, be talking about the weirdest con in recent memory in sports, which was an Indian con to get Russian betters to wager rubles on cricket matches that weren't even happening. (laughs) But we're going to begin with baseball, the baseballs. Uh, And, you know, uh, I'm going to introduce our guest in a second, but, you know, this should be a good time for Major League Baseball. It just had a reasonably exciting all-star game. Uh, Julio Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners had a potential breakout moment during the home run derby, although he lost it to Juan Soto of the Nationals. Uh, It's being argued that Alec Manoa, a pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays, may have stolen the show last night for reasons we'll discuss with our guest. Uh, And the Yankees are acting like the Bronx bombers of old with an almost unthinkable 64-28 and record over the first half. The Dodgers are not far behind with 60 wins, and the usually lowly and luckless Mets are the biggest surprise of all, maybe, with 58 wins. Shohei Otani, the amazing pitcher-hitter, seems to do something unprecedented almost every other week. Red Sox slugger J.D. Martinez says if things continue in this way, the league should just name the MVP trophy after Otani and just plan on awarding it to him every year for the next five or six years. So lots of interesting stuff going on, and yet, and yet, you know, there's always this sense that baseball is beset with problems. It's not part of the national conversation the way other sports are. There are a lot of people out there who could not name one active Major League Baseball player. There's nobody famous enough among active players to be in a subway commercial with other sports superstars. The league has to look back to A-Rod, Big Poppy, and Derek Jeter to find someone with crossover appeal. Um, so there's been a long, long conversation, a lot of whispering over the corpse of baseball for decades now. Uh, it, it never results in anything permanent, but it also doesn't really seem to fix itself either, despite some pretty incredible efforts being made right now. So join us, joining us to talk about all of that and possibly more, uh, Michael Bauman uh, is staff writer for The Ringer. He covers sports, culture, and politics. Michael Bauman, welcome to our conversation. I'm glad to be here, although I think you should hang up with me and go right to the Indian cricket gambling thing. That's the, <laughs> the real story. It, it is, but you know, baseball is pretty interesting too. And you know, and I, I thought last night, uh, baseball did some things. We, we can talk about the problems that baseball has in some of this incredible, just 
avalanche of structural corrections that have gone on over recent years and apparently will continue into the immediate future. But last night, I think just the simple act of miking up all those players really helped them a lot. What were your thoughts? This is something that they've tried over the past few seasons, I think, with mixed results. Uh, there was a disastrous in-game interview with Ramon Laureano, who's a center fielder for the uh, Oakland A's during a playoff game a few years ago, where they were interviewing him while balls were getting hit over his head during a playoff game. Uh, and that harshed the the buzz for, for in-game interviews for much of the season. But I think ESPN in particular, and Fox obviously had the, the All-Star game last night, they've done a good job of it uh, this year by singling out players who really want to be there, who are really interested in having a conversation with the the broadcasters during the game. There was a great uh, in-game interview with Joey Votto early in the season. I think what's helped is they've found players who are interested in doing this, and then uh, it sort of became a thing where the player getting interviewed would nominate a player to take the interview on the next Sunday night baseball game. So they've gotten more buy-in from the players. Um, and Alec Minoza the guy you mentioned last night, um, there were a few really good in-game interviews last night, but uh, Manoa is just a really, really fun personality. He's a young pitcher for the Blue Jays out of Florida uh, in the University of West Virginia. Big guy. There's a lot of fastballs, uh, has a lot of fun on the mound. He's one of my favorite personalities in the game, and, and it was really cool to see him not only pitch well in this big showcase, but get the the opportunity to show off what makes him like it a fun person to root for. Yeah, and just to, um, just to so, sort of build on that a little bit. So, And, you know, baseball does have a little bit of a reputation of collectively having a stick up its ass compared to uh, other sports. You should pardon my expression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But, you know, Manoa was, what he was doing, which was, I, I thought, kind of amazing, was he was talking to John Smoltz, who was one of the two broadcasters of the game, former great major league pitcher. And at one point he said, what should I throw? And Smoltz said, a, a, a back foot slider or something like that, whereupon mm-hmm. Manoa threw that and hit the guy at the plate. <laughs> Didn't seem too happy about it. And it seemed like Manoa was kind of bounding off the mound and throwing his arms out, out probably saying, John Smoltz told me to throw that ball to you. <laughs> to me, that's like baseball needs a little bit more of that kind of thing. And ironically, Smoltz being part of that, you will not find a bigger curmudgeon in sports broadcasting totally. than John Smoltz. And uh he was sort of he was involved in this fun moment almost against his will, uh, just because Manoa was so charismatic. Um, and there was a, another great interviewing or interview. I think it was the the inning after where they had Max Fried of the Braves and Garrett Cole of the Yankees sort of cross talking to each other during uh, during an inning, talking about you know pitchers hitting and like giving. It, there was some sneaky insight into like the the physicality of, of hitting and running the bases that you don't really think about. Um, and both of those guys were having a really good time. And I think baseball is really getting the players at least are getting a lot less uptight. You know, the guys who were born after 1990, who you know grew up with social media, who know that that this is a, a show they have to market themselves, that they have to um, show a little bit more personality than than the more straight laced older players. And you know, that intergenerational cultural war was fought and won in my opinion by the good guys about five years ago and we're really seeing a lot of a lot of young players with big personalities and a lot of older players too you know Clayton Kershaw is a very straight-laced personality he was all over the broadcast uh last night so it's we're seeing a lot of the the biggest stars in in baseball even those who aren't sort of naturally charismatic, understanding and embracing that that this game is supposed to be fun, that it's supposed to be entertaining. And I think 
you know, for all the other problems with the game, it's a, it's in a really good place uh, in terms of the attitudes of the players. Right yes. Now. And you mentioned social media. That has been a problem for Major League Baseball. LeBron James famously has like 100 million collectively social media followers. Mike Trout, the best uh, baseball player of the last 50 years by some people's reckoning, has like 2 million followers mm-hmm. and has to stick up his ass and was mic'd up in one of these games and clearly didn't want to do it and was really boring. I, I just want to just for people who really do like baseball uh, and follow it a little bit, play another mic'd up moment from last night, and that is two of the Yankees player, players, uh, the battery uh, of um, Nestor Cortez and catcher Jose Trevino, uh, were both mic'd up, uh, and you actually got to hear, maybe not as authentically as you would hear in a game with real stakes, but you got, you got, you got to hear two guys kind of talking through the process of what to throw. You'll also hear the umpire in here a little bit, uh, Cat A1. What do you think of it? Carter back door. Okay. Get there. Yeah. yeah. It's too horizontal. I messed up. What do you got? Talk to me. You got heater up and in. You got cutter in. So, uh. You got. You got What's up? Heater up and in. Alright. Sir, do you want this ball? Yeah. He, he does strike the guy out. That's why his catcher asks him if he wants the ball. So, um. You know, for all of that, um, what I wonder about is why Michael Bauman does isn't isn't there isn't there why isn't there somebody to go in that subway commercial right? I mean, why why isn't Aaron Judge who's on track to hit you know maybe fifty eight home runs this year? Why isn't he like a really famous guy that you could drop into a subway commercial, not put a name tag on him, and have people know who he is? Well, I mean the the. Specific answer is that Mike Trout's the subway guy and Aaron, Aaron Judge is the Jersey Mike's guy. Yeah. Uh, but okay. both of those guys are are sort of terminally boring personalities. This is why I, I think Judge is so great for New York City. He's boring the same way Derek Jeter was boring. And some of these guys have it and some of them don't. And, you know, it's Judge and Trout and to a certain extent Otani, who I think can be fun but uh, isn't quite comfortable um, being extemporaneous in English. Uh, at this point in his career, um, and, you know, and he's under no obligation to be. He's still the probably the biggest star in the game right now. But you look at guys who are comfortable in that limelight. You look at guys like Bryce Harper, Juan Soto. We saw a little bit of that with Julio Rodriguez, um, Ronald Acuna, you know, Manoa, if he takes that leap. A bunch of guys in Toronto, I think, have real star power. And it, it comes more naturally to some players than others. And the, you know, the, the line between talent and winning MVP awards and being fun, you know, being extemporaneous, it's tough to do both of those things. Not everybody has those gifts. And I think the other thing is Mike Trout, if, if Mike Trout is the LeBron James of basketball, LeBron James is out there with the camera right up on his face for 40 minutes a night. He's handling the ball on every possession. Mike Trout comes up four times a game and maybe he'll field two or three balls in the outfield. And he's just not as present. You know, it's sort of the nature of the game that that the best baseball players don't have as big an impact as the best basketball players. And I think that has a lot of, a lot to do with, um, with fans sort of building that parasocial relationship with a, a baseball player. And I think, you know, the players who are more candid in interviews, who, uh, participate in these mic'd up segments, who are more active on social media, who sort of, have that that natural pizzazz um there's only so so far that can can go just because of the nature of the sport and you look at you know another sport that's taking off in the u.s uh right now is formula one 
that's because people are getting invested in these drivers because the cameras are in their faces all the time. You're hearing what they're saying on the radio during the races. You get a sense of their personality or the emotional journey they're going through uh, in a game. And it's just, it's difficult, maybe impossible to really do that in, in baseball the way it is with the, with other sports. So I think the, the league is trying and I give them a lot of credit for that, but uh, it's maybe not the, the sport that's best suited for uh, the kind of, access to personality that that gets fans invested right now. So here we are. We're at midpoint uh, of the 2022 season. Um, that's the time for taking stock. Attendance is down 6.4% league-wide uh, over 2019, the last analogous year. You have to kind of take 20 and 21 mm-hmm. out of the mix because of COVID restrictions. Uh, if you do that and you look at the other five years, including this one, if it stays on its current track, attendance will have dropped every single year uh, of those five years. Uh, when you ask people in poll, you polls, people under 30 to name their favorite sport, baseball clocks in fifth, behind the, including behind the very popular something else. Um, and, and you know, these these are warning signs. I don't know how alarming you as a baseball fan and baseball writer find them, but I get the feeling Rob Manfred, the commissioner, does find them alarming. I don't get that. I don't get that picture, actually, because uh, Manfred is accelerating a lot of the trends that are chasing fans away from the game. And, I, and I'll say this, the baseball is dying trip, I think it's overstated, or at least, you know, I'm 35 years old and I've been hearing this my entire life, and it's been written about for 35 years before that, basically since the NFL got big in the 60s. So we've been on this trend for a long time, and baseball's still incredibly healthy. They still draw millions of fans and make tens of billions of dollars a year. So you know, it's I think you have to want to find a problem in terms of like the economic health of the game. But what's so what's chasing fans away though, to to uh speak to your point about attendance, it's so expensive to go to a game ticket prices are through the roof and you look at what you're getting, you know, you're getting the average fan is getting squeezed out for, uh, for corporate sponsors, for teams catering to people in luxury boxes. Uh, while, you know, the economy is not great for a lot of people, a lot of, you know, you talk about runaway inflation and, and the, the cost of food and gas and, and rent is going up. It's not feasible for a lot of people to, um, you know, to spend, $200 to take a family of four to, to a Yankees game or, or, you know, whatever team is the, uh, the local team. So that's a problem. And then once you go there, about a third of the league is just not interested in competing. They're sometimes, uh, sincerely, sometimes not saying we're going to lose today to win tomorrow. And there's no, you know, there's no end in sight for not, any, not even like, teams like the pirates, but like the Chicago Cubs are one of the marquee, marquee franchises in baseball. And they've divested everything from their, their on-field product to gentrify North Chicago and win, uh, you know, uh, and fund the Republican party of Nebraska. Like that's what the money of the, of the Cubs is going to. It's not going to making the, the team something you'd want to spend $200 to, to take your family afford to. And then what Rob Manfred, one, he's really championing is, um, shutting down a huge section of the minor leagues. We lost 40 minor league teams in a consolidation by Major League Baseball. And that's where, you know, certainly as somebody who grew up in a family that couldn't afford to go to, to baseball games all the time, I'd spent a lot of my childhood in minor league, you know, double-A, triple-A stadiums. Uh, that's where I saw the professional game for the first time. And that's less accessible than it's been in, ge- in a generation. Um, so you're alienating young fans at every turn in the pursuit of short-term profit. And I think that, 
I mean, whatever else you could say about Rob Manfred, he's very good at generating short-term profit. And that's been uh, the hallmark of his administration as commissioner. When I tell people some of the changes that have already been made, if they don't follow baseball, they're kind of surprised. The thing that surprised them, surprises them the most is when I tell them, oh, well, now if the game goes into extra innings, they put a runner on second base at the beginning of the inning. He doesn't have to do anything to get there. He's just there so the game doesn't run too long. Or maybe they'll score sooner. Uh, but there have been a lot of changes made already to speed up the game. This is you know, often, it's often cited it was one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem for Major League Baseball. Baseball. And there are more changes to come. And and I don't know, I, I feel like, Michael, if you just add them all up, I don't think I can think of a sport. Sports are always tweaking their rules. But, you know, baseball is, they're talking about maybe next year actually telling fielders where they can stand and where mm-hmm. they can't stand, uh, starting a pitch clock for the pitchers. Uh, they're talking about in 2024, Manfred is thinking maybe having robotic balls and strikes calling. I mean, these are really big changes. These aren't little tweaks like saying you don't have to throw all four pitches when you're intentionally walking somebody. And I think... It's particularly jarring to baseball because baseball has been very deistic about its rule set. You know, we fixed the dimensions of the field a hundred years or more than a hundred years ago now. Uh, and there's like this poetic old man, George Will type nostalgia about, oh, the dimensions of the field are perfect. Well, they're not anymore. Baseball players are bigger and faster than they were 130 years ago when everybody was on the verge of dying with, you know, dying of pleurisy as, as they were competing <laughs> in the World Series. Like it's a different game now. And the rules basically didn't change for the first 65 years or so of the, the modern era until they lowered the mound and instituted the DH in the American League. And the rules basically didn't change for another 40 or 50 years after that. So now what we're seeing is a collection of between the pitch clock, between the ghost runner rule, between the the ban on the shift that's been mooted. Um, you know, I have different opinions about certain of, of those rules, but in concert, it's a, it's a move to make the game evolve to suit the needs of its modern players and fans, which is something that baseball has been very, very late in doing. You know, you look at the NFL rewrites its rule book every year. The NHL has uh, a lab league, basically. They call it R&D camp, where they take minor leaguers and young players and test out like, okay, what if we... At, you know, take a line off the ice or add a line to the ice or, or change the rules in this way or, or other, or go to three on three overtime. And they have a, a means of testing that. And baseball is just starting to do that with the minor leagues and some of their, their partnerships with the, the Atlantic league and, um, and other independent leagues. And so, you know, I, I think this is necessary. This is how you get innovations like the shot clock in the NBA. And so to that point specifically, I think the pitch clock would solve so many of the problems with baseball as a spectator sport. It's not that the games are too long. It's that there's so much dead time between pitches when there's just not a reason for it. So, you know, force the pitchers to work faster, force the batters to stay in the box between pitches. You just keep the pace moving and you just keep fans a little bit more engaged. I think that'll go a long way towards improving the game as a, um, as a spectator sport. And I, it, the league has the opportunity to implement that unilaterally next year. 
uh, if they, it can't come soon enough, in my opinion. So I want to explain one of these other things just for fans who, uh, for, for people who listen to the show who are not necessarily big baseball fans. So one of the other big changes, in addition to what Michael just said about uh, players are bigger and stronger and faster and not dying of pleurisy, uh, another big change has to do with just a, a quantitative analysis of everything. Everything is now mm-hmm. analyzed to a fairly well. And so one of the things they now know is that if Giancarlo Stanton is up at the plate against a certain kind of pitcher, um, they have a pretty good statistical understanding of where he is most likely to hit the ball. So what has happened is an era of shifts where quite frequently you will see uh, maybe just one person on the left side of the infield. The third baseman will move over into the shortstop spot. The shortstop will go stand wherever that hitter is most likely to be hitting the ball. And it really works incredibly effectively. But I mean, if you sort of enjoy action, you know, these, you know, hard hit balls that look like they should go for a single or extra bases and are just being cleanly fielded because there's a guy standing based on statistics, right where you're supposed to hit the ball. I, I do find that boring. I find it it's an impediment to my enjoyment of the game. And I do think they need to do something about it, even though it seems like a weird thing to have to address. But what are your thoughts? It's I'm generally anti-shift, but it's interesting. I mean, there's we could do half an hour on on how much the shift actually works and and how that's changed over the past few years. It's been really interesting because a lot of the aggregate data for a long time didn't show that the shift was having a huge effect on on balls in play uh but that's changed in the past couple seasons and you know the solution for somebody like John Carlos Stanton who he is in a an unusual position that can hit the ball over the shift yeah. um so that's you know that's uh something that's available to him that's not available to everybody i think i think there could be in unintended consequences to to banning the shift but again this is not an unusual or this is not a new thing they were doing this to ted williams in the 40s um but i think that you know you want to prioritize action and baseball is not a sport like basketball or football where statistical analysis leads to like a more open game like you just people started crunching the numbers on football and they're and the the answer turned out to be just throw the ball all the time and basketball turned out to be go for dunks and three pointers and that's great and that's awesome and both those sports are are thriving and in baseball the, the most efficient way to play it is a lot of walks and home runs and strikeouts which are not that fun to watch on television and so the the league needs to do something to shift those incentives and i think banning the shift I really have no idea if it's going to work or not on the aggregate, if there's going to be a noticeable difference in style of play. Uh, But I appreciate they're finally open to trying something. And and you know what? And you ask players and they're split on this. You know, some, some players have, have different opinions, pitchers, position players, different types of hitters. You know, you ask 10 different players, you're going to get six different opinions on the shift. So it's not something that I think there's a lot of consensus on. Um, but there definitely is a perception that that it, it turns a lot of singles into outs. And, and you want more singles if you want a more kinetic game. So, last question. I, I want to give a shout out to Lou Boudreau for inventing the Williams shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but so, last question. I mean, the, the way the season's unfolding, you could have something that any major sport wants, which is uh, a World Series between an LA team and a New York team or maybe a little bit less desirably, two New York teams in a Subway Series. Uh, but the, the Dodgers uh, are are playing amazingly well. The Yankees are playing even better. The Mets are good. 
would it, does it strike you that this is the kind of thing? I mean, the problem with the Yankees playing this well is that as a Red Sox fan, I'm watching less baseball because it just doesn't really seem like anybody but the Yankees yeah. <laughs> are going to win. So there's a little problem with dominance. But but I would imagine that from Rob Manfred's point of view, this is kind of, you know, this probably has him drooling a little bit, this idea of maybe Dodgers-Yankees. Yeah, I there's definitely an argument. and It helps that both of these teams have the stars that you want to put out in front of the the entire world, you know, Judge, Garrett Cole, Stanton, Mookie Betts, Kershaw. You know, these are players who are going to draw. I think I could go two ways, one of two ways about this. One is like you obviously want to have your big markets engaged, and that's been, you know, it's been helpful that the Yankees and Red Sox have been good, that the Dodgers have been good, that the Astros have been good. Like these are huge cities that are going to draw fans and pour a lot of money into the game. But I also think there's something good about making new stars using the the postseason as a way to mint um mm-hmm. mint a new star who's going to draw more fans into the game and you know we saw this with Juan Soto in 2019 Madison Bumgarner every year or every other year I should say in the early 2010s you know you think about the the 08 Phillies with Chase Utley and Cole Hamels in that group um exposing new play exposing new players to the national audience and particularly charismatic players and so would my ideal World Series be Yankees Dodgers for the health of the game? Maybe, but I think you could make an argument that Dodgers Blue Jays, even though you're not getting that big American TV market, it's worth it if you get Manoa and Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero out in front of a national mm. audience for the first time uh, for a long period of time. That would be just as good for the game. So, I mean, I think that speaks to to the game being in a, in a pretty good place in this specific respect is that there's a lot of good players, a lot of players who were really easy and fun to root for uh, in a way that, you know, hasn't been the case since the nineties, in my opinion. So I, I, you know, it's just fun to, to watch these guys. I I really do feel, feel fortunate that we're we're able to watch some of these players we got right now. Um, So you can't really go wrong. Um, unless you're a Yankees hater, which is certainly uh, <laughs> a you know a standpoint I appreciate. All right, Michael Bauman, those are all great points. I totally agree. Uh, and uh, Michael Bauman's a staff writer at the Ringer, covering sports, culture, and politics. Great to have you. We got to move on to pickleball and then to cricket and other things with that kind of ick sound in it. But after all the different versions of what I'm supposed to know, I wind up understanding even less. But then I turn to Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. 
Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So we're, you know, only about halfway through 2022, uh, but I feel like at the end of the year, when I'm, if somebody asked me, what was the greatest sentence you saw written in a magazine article, I will say it is the sentence, quote, pickleball will save America, unquote. Kuhn told me as I drank from a can of his personal brand of rainwater. Uh, that quote occurs in a New Yorker article by our guest right now. Uh, Sarah Larson is a staff writer for The New Yorker, uh, and she has written a, uh, an article fittingly titled, Can Pickleball Save America? Uh, and she's joining us right now. Hi, how are you? Hi, Colin. I'm great. How are you? Good. So this is a great article all the way through. It's a 7,000-word article about pickleball, and you don't ever <laughs> want to put it down. And that's really saying something. Um, but, you know, one of the you, you make a series of arguments. Let's start with the idea that pickleball, which you may need to describe just a teeny tiny bit, is the fastest growing sport in America. <laughs> I have so much to say about this. <laughs> um, so I... Do you think people know what pickleball is? Um, it's basically, as I say in the piece, it's um, it's like a smaller, lighter, somewhat easier version of tennis. Um, it was invented in 1965 in Bainbridge Island off Seattle by some dads who wanted to be able to play a fun game with their kids. And, you know, it got popular among older people. I think people who have heard of pickleball often associate it with older players, Um but it's also growing fast among young people. And there's this whole pro scene developing of people of all ages. But uh, the fastest growing sport in America thing I learned wonderfully as I was researching all of this was a phrase that was coined by the inventor of one of the sports signature moves, the Ernie, Ernie Perry. <laughs> and this was long before pickleball was growing quickly at all. Um, that was you know, a couple decades ago, <laughs> but they just started saying <laughs> that it was the fastest growing sport in America. And now I think it really is. Yeah. If you say it enough, it becomes true, but it really does seem to be true. Uh, I, 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 I can over. confirm this also from talking to my friend from college, Scott Sherman, uh, who is, has, I think, decoupaged your article onto a shower curtain or something. He plays pickleball. <laughs> He's very excited about what you wrote. So the other, th the next thing that's a, an important iteration in your piece is this sense that at least at its outset, in a way that maybe is being a little bit threatened right now, there was a kind of utopian Wikipedia feeling about pickleball, right? That there was, there was going to yeah. be a fine line between the champion and the duffer or whatever the pickleball yeah. equivalent yeah. of that was, and, and that everybody was going to be going to be kind of treated the same way. Uh, and maybe you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. It was, um, well, Built into the design uh, was that, you know, because it's on a smaller space, it's about a quarter of the size of a tennis court, and there are certain rules that make it, um, you know, there's a no volley zone close to the net, so you can't just stand there waiting to smash it and destroy your opponent. And that was done sort of to be equitable among parents and kids, short people, tall people, you know. But the way that it was, and it's more popular in doubles than in singles. So that means there's even less running. Um, but what that effectively means is that, you know, people recovering from injuries have an easier time playing it. People who don't want to or can't run very well or fast 
don't have to. So it's it's very accessible in many ways in the way that it um, is played. And also it's cheap. You can kind of set it up pretty easily with minimal equipment. Um, so it brings in people who are not confident athletes and people who were athletes, but who, you know, got old or are injured. <laughs> I, I mean, I've been saying to people, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50 and I was saying the, the potential for embarrassment, if somebody says, Hey, let's play pickup basketball or let's play tennis, you know, is very high. <laughs> <laughs> You, you can look bad, you know, and it's, um, you, you might just opt out, but I think pickleball is, is much friendlier to that and you can become competent quickly. Um, and then to be actually great is a whole other level. And we can talk about that, but I think at, a, at the basic, like, let's have fun hitting back and forth level. It's very friendly to everybody. Right. And so because everybody can kind of do it, at least for a while, there was a sort of evening out uh, of talent so that uh, mm-hmm. in your piece, I think there's sort of a, a grandmotherly type lady who turns out to be playing doubles with three of the Pittsburgh Steelers and it's all <laughs> right. fine. Yeah. She and her partner beat the other, you know, and there's sort of that kind of sense that, you know, the, that this is for everybody. Everybody can do it. Yeah. All ages can do it. You can do it with your grandmother, you know, if she's relatively spry, uh, all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, but then, inevitably, there is some kind of professionalism that's empty, that's entering the whole process. You talk about at least yeah. one player who estimates he's made about a quarter million of a year, a year playing pickleball or doing associated pickleball things. And there's now two or three different potential professional pickleball leagues. This is like a tongue twister, including the yeah. APP and the PPA. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Life of Brian where the, the liberation groups are kind of, oh, not the people's liberation of Judea. They're a bunch of wankers. No, we're the liberation <laughs> of the people of Judea. Uh, but but there's sort of these leagues forming, and and inevitably there's it's going to become more hierarchical. And, and you yeah. do a great job of kind of characterizing the unease about that. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's tricky. You know, all this started unfolding as I was on my way to my first pickleball tournament to begin the reporting for this piece. I didn't even know that was happening until I literally started, you know, walking into the scene. Um, And and just basically what's happening is there, there have long been tournaments, there was nationals has been going on for many years, as has a US Open of pickleball. But then these two independent tours that have many, you know, dozens of tournaments a year. So you can basically go to play pickleball in a tournament almost every weekend if you want to. Um, They started around the time of the pandemic began and they coexisted pretty happily for a while. And then, um, you know, more money started coming into it. And one of the one of the tours wanted to lock down its talent so it could help get TV deals and guarantee to sponsors, um, you know, that it had all these great players. But then, of course, it's a small, close-knit community, and um, I think it's been a little stressful for some of them. Um, But it's just basically, you know, competition, and uh, (laughs) there's some everybody loves that it's friendly and egalitarian, but of course it also is competitive and the better you get at it, the more that increases. I love I love the, I love the, yeah. <laughs> I, I love the fact that the, the pickleball community, 
uses the word tennis kind of the way Ted Cruz uses the word socialism. You know, if something is tennis, that's wrong, right? There's a lot of things about tennis. I think it's sort of money, hyper-competitiveness, lack of sportsmanship. There's a lot of sort of uh, assumptions about the latent qualities of tennis that pickleball wants to be the opposite of. Yeah, and, you know, many of the people saying that were tennis players. So it isn't as if this is a tennis hating group of people who wanted to do something different. You know, I, I actually kept thinking, and this was a metaphor that I wanted to use, but it reminded me of people in a happy second marriage, you know, it's happy and it's stable, (laughs) but the first marriage that was impassioned and difficult hangs over everything. Like it comes up a lot, you know, (laughs) talking about it. Um, (laughs) They, they have an interesting relationship. And then of course, the other part of that is that as the competitiveness and the money and so on ramps up, so does the tennis part of the game. It becomes a bit more like tennis. Mm. Um, So so uh, this is the last question I have time for. The article is great. People should just read it. And it's really funny and really interesting. Although there is one glaring omission, as far as I can tell anyway, and that is you, Sarah Larson. Me? How, do you pickle? Have you pickled? How how, how pickled are you? Yeah, Once do, you do, pickle. Do you got game? You know, I... Uh, I, I have played a little. I was taught by a very nice uh, gentleman in Boca Raton, but I first learned about pickleball from uh, Brene Brown last year, who I was writing a profile of, and I asked her, you know, what her goals were for afterlife return to normal. <laughs> she paused and said, more pickleball. So that, that sort of started this journey um, of my researching it and everything. And I would love to play more because I love tennis, but... Um, you know, <laughs> I might be entering the pickleball phase of my life. Yes, so. I, I think that will become one of the seven ages of humankind, <laughs> the pickleball phase. Sarah Larson, great article and your delight to talk to you. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Stop writer really for the New Yorker, Sarah, Lauren, Sarah Larson. All right. Uh, I almost heard you into a college. All right. So uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll talk about cricket and, oh, oh, the dark side of cricket. slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. 
All right. So our last topic is tri- is cricket. Uh, I just want to say, with all the talk about uh, speeding up baseball, people should watch cricket sometime. C- cricket actually has a thing where there are meals served <laughs> to the players while they're playing. They have like a lunch delivered, you know, and it's like roast turkey and stuff and stuff, you know, and they have a tea later on and stuff like that. Uh, c- cricket, uh, some of the matches can take five days. So, uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about a cricket con, a sting or something like that with Kyle Barr, a breaking news reporter for Gizmodo. He's taking time out from writing his six episode HBO treatment of this story, uh, which is, I'm, I'm sure, soon to, to make it to the screen. Uh, and he is going to tell us a little bit about what happened when a group of Indian conners decided to to get Russian wagerers to to bet on a simulated and entirely fictional cricket game. Kyle Barr, welcome to our show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, um, to sketch this out for us, right? So basically, uh, the major cricket season that was being represented by this had actually ended, but somehow or other. There were on YouTube games that people could be induced to bet on. How was that possible? So it's more like, okay, the best way I can put it, it's almost like the movie Sandlot meets the 1973 film The Sting. I don't know <laughs> if those two references really work together. But anyway, the, the idea is that um, this these Indian uh, con artists met some Russians in a bar, supposedly, according to multiple uh, reports. Um and they talked to them about uh, what cricket is, and you know they introduced them to cricket. So they got them onto Telegram channels where they would show them these live streamed YouTube videos, and the Russians would place bets to these Indians, who would then kind of funnel that uh, that communications over to the people on the field, quote unquote, around field, and uh, you know tell those people on the field like, hey, this guy just bet that they were going to bowl a six, so then, you know, they would try and reenact that. And then, you know, of course, to get these gamblers to give them more money through these telegram channels. Um, and so they they went to some lengths to simulate these games. They even found a guy who could impersonate uh, the kind of Jim Nance of cricket or something. Maybe that's actually damning with faint praise. There's a guy named Harsha Bogle, who's, I guess, a famous cricket commentator. Bogle, yeah. Yeah, they, the Bogle, okay. And so they had a, a, a guy who could talk like him. And, and they got people to simulate being cricket players. Now, who are those mm-hmm. people? Who are those simulators? So apparently they were just farmers um, that this guy uh, basically rented out a, a farm field, uh, made it look like a uh, bowling pitch that you see on a cricket field. Um, the way that they framed the camera only centered on the actual rectangle that the uh, the pitch is set up on so that, uh, you know, you couldn't really see that there was no stands around or anything like that. The players were farmers. The umpires and the people calling the shots were the people in charge of the scam. Now, the, the farmers only got paid about five bucks American for each game. The ringleaders only got around 4,000, according to Indian police, which makes them seem like, you know, oh, there might be a bigger player underneath all this. But it also could just be that this was a very weird scam that really had no way of actually making much money at all. Did they even break break even? I mean, there were expenses associated with all this. There's reports that, no, they, they didn't really break even. Uh, I forget how much they supposedly paid to rent the field, but they didn't really make much since they were doing the season. 
they didn't even get to finish the season before the cops arrested the people on the field. Uh, they didn't even get to the semifinals, I don't believe. <laughs> so we should also say that they piped into the, the – they got crowd noises, I guess, from some other thing on YouTube. They they just found yeah, some – just, just um, you know, some, some regular uh, background noise that you could probably find on the internet somewhere. So in a way, you know, you look at something like this and it's it's a genuinely funny story, although I feel kind of bad for everybody who did, you know, the poor farmers who, I don't know, probably the sorghum crop was going untended or something while they were doing all this stuff that they weren't really legitimately compensated for or helpfully compensated for. But you also think, you know, we live in the era of deep fakes. I wouldn't call this a deep fake. This is like a, a medium mm-hmm. fake or something. But you do sort Small of think, I, I wonder if we are going to see a little bit more of this kind of thing, that it is possible to to create something that that has the look and feel of something that was really happening, even when this particular thing is not. Well, there there is multiple cases of deep fakes being used to uh, to actually swindle people and Recently, the uh, I believe the FBI um, and other federal agencies have come out saying that deepfakes are indeed being used by um, remote workers in you know in, in foreign places to try and apply to jobs and gain access to sensitive information at different companies. But in this case, it's 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 a much more slapdash, haphazard affair. It's it's really kind of more funny in the end than anything else, um, especially considering just how much more prolific. And, you know, lucrative other scams have proved, you know, you don't have to look far for, you know, many scams in India could be um, crypto based. And there's other scams that are, um, you know, just just phishing scams to get people to sign over information. Um, You know, there's 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 plenty of that already going on that are obviously proven lucrative and some have even said, you know, they're they're so enmeshed in certain parts of uh, India, they're hard to root out, though there are, you know, police and uh, online groups working towards that. And of course, regular Indians don't like these scammers as much as anybody else. So it, this 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 story just kind of jumps out as a what and a, OK, it, it's almost feel good compared to the rest of those scam stories in the end. Well, yeah, as you're suggesting, you know, there's a sort of, hey, there's some costumes in the barn. Let's put on a fake cricket play uh, thing that's that's kind of different from the highly digital, dark, webby kind of stuff that, mm-hmm. that really seems to defraud people now. So the fact that there's literally skin in the game, there's flesh and blood people doing something. You're kind of saying that that's maybe one of the upsides here? I'd say one of the upsides here is that, um, you know, we all got to watch something play out that was a little bit silly. Apparently the farmers weren't arrested. They were treated as witnesses, according to uh, local papers who quoted police. So that's something to, you know, at least clap your hands at the regular farmers were apparently weren't arrested. Uh, Only the ringleaders, which was about maybe like four of them were actually arrested in this scheme. And since so little money actually changed hands and some from so few people especially from uh, a bunch of Russian gamblers, it's hard to really feel bad for anybody involved. Um, And you can kind of just laugh at it, which is where I would say the silver lining is is that you can just kind of like read the story and think, yeah, that would make a good movie someday. Yeah. If, If somebody ever, you know, decides to make, you know, a remake of The Sting meets Sandlot. 
Kyle, this could be you. You really should. You should have a treatment uh, in progress. You know the story better than uh, just about anybody. So, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a way in which th- this isn't even Dr. Evil money. You know, we make no. fun of Dr. Evil because he goes one million dollars like he thinks that's a lot of money. This is for four thousand dollars. And I guess there might be and I don't know how much is known about this, but but there might be another silver lining to that, too. The silver lining being that. Russians are not notoriously good sports about being fooled or taken to the cleaners. Actually, they're not notoriously good sports about anything. So I, I don't know if there's, you know, I don't know how mad could they get about losing the equivalent of $4,000. But was, is there any sense of like how the Russian, I, we don't even really know who exactly they were. Presumably they weren't oligarchs or they would have been betting more. No, and they came from apparently multiple uh, cities in Russia, according to some reports. So it's hard to say how many people were actually betting on these things, how many people were in the Telegram channel who got kind of duped into this. The fact that it didn't last more than a single season also kind of proves that it couldn't have been that harmful to these players, especially if they're you if they're regular gambling, you know, sports gamblers. They know how much money they should be putting into this stuff. So I mean, I can estimate that since you know the wages for the for the scam artists were so low that they probably weren't betting the farm in this either um, but of course we have really no idea since uh, we don't know how many people were actually you know getting swindled in this no they weren't betting the farm they were betting on farmers they just didn't know that <laughs> so yeah and i also wonder maybe to end on a somewhat philosophical point here if this is also one of the things that i've been thinking a lot about lately is here in the U.S., and it's different in India, whereas, to my understanding, sports betting is basically kind of illegal, generally speaking. But, you know, here, this proliferation of sports betting has led to people betting on everything, right? You can place a bet on which Major League Baseball manager is going to be fired next, you know? Um, you, You can place a bet on, and I feel like we're sort of saturated with a kind of betting idiocy. And this feels a little bit like that, too. I mean, you know, to be that eager to bet that you would be betting on something that was just really, you know, almost transparently, because transparently probably not happening. It wasn't even in the season that that particular league was supposed to be playing. It almost mm-hmm. feels like a kind of snow blindness of, of gambling. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely see that. And especially in New York, where, you know, you turn on the TV or you go on YouTube and you're getting advertisements for, you know, sports gambling from, you know, whether or not it's, uh, you know, fantasy leagues or, or just regular old sports betting. Um, so honestly, we're, I wouldn't say that like, you know, something like that could happen here. Although it, like I said, since we already know of much more effective scams, you could pull off, you know, just using the internet, not having to get your knees dirty on any uh, baseball or cricket pitch. I mean, it's the it's it's one of those things I think like you know sports betting is just a uh, it, it's its own thing at this point it, it's just a too large to fail and too lucrative to stop kind of organization. Oh yeah, no, there's no getting that that Kyle back in the barn. Kyle Barr is a breaking news reporter for Gizmodo. He covered this thing. He'll be taking a new position as director of cybersecurity for Pickleball. I predict in the near future. We can't let that happen here on our shores. Uh, And thanks for listening to our idea of a sports show today, a little different from most people's.